Well, good morning. I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the Old Testament book of First Chronicles. First Chronicles chapter 13 this morning. And while you're turning there, just allow me, if you would, to take a moment to say thank you so much for your hospitality. I appreciate the invitation of your pastor, Brother James. I've come to know and love him and his family and uh, just so honored that he would call and ask uh, for me to, to stand and fill his place here this morning. So, uh, so glad to be here with you. I do bring you greetings from right across town at Calvary Baptist. We are uh, just so grateful to have brothers and sisters like yourselves uh, making disciples and reaching men and women, boys and girls here in Rapid City and around the world together. So it is just so encouraging to be partners in the gospel with you. But uh, with that being said, uh, and, and also thank you, uh, Brother Joel, for leading us this morning, uh, just such an encouraging, uplifting time of worship. Uh, as we turn to First Chronicles chapter 13, we are faced with a story this morning that gives us a glimpse into the holiness of God. And I'll just say, if you find yourself wrestling with this text, do not be surprised. Uh, you are not the first, and you certainly will not be the last. David, who was a man, I remind you, after God's own heart, had a pretty big problem with what he witnessed God do in First Chronicles chapter 13. David has decided to bring the ark of God back to Jerusalem. It has been absent for many, many years. He seeks to bring the ark back, and as the ark represents the presence of God, and as the ark resided in the tabernacle with that pillar of cloud over the mercy seat, David has a deep desire to bring the presence of God back to the holy city. So as we begin reading in 1 Chronicles chapter 13, let's back up to verse 5 to get a little context. The text tells us, so David assembled all Israel from the Nile of Egypt to Lebo Hamath to bring the ark of God from Kiriath-Jerim. And David and all Israel went up to Baalah, that is to Kiriath-Jerim, that belongs to Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord who sits enthroned above the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart from the house of Abinadab, and Uzzah and Ahio were driving the cart. David and all Israel were celebrating before God with all their might, with songs and with lyres and with harps and tambourines and cymbals and trumpets. And when they came to the threshing floor of Kidon, Uzzah put out his hand to take hold of the ark, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and he struck him down because he put out his hand to the ark, and he died there before God. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. And that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of God that day. And he said, how can I bring the ark of God home to me? My life has been greatly shaped and transformed by a book written by a Presbyterian of all things, if you can believe that. Uh, Dr. R.C. Sproul died a few years ago, but he wrote a book years and years ago, I believe it was back in the 80s, by the title of The Holiness of God. And there's a story that appears in that book that, that Dr. Sproul tells of himself. Uh, I heard him preach several times uh, and tell this story as well. But he talks about during his days as a college professor, he had put out a syllabus and he told his students that they had three papers due during the period of the semester and their first paper would be due on September 30th, the second would be due on 
uh, October 30th, and the third and final paper on November 30th. And he gave them these instructions. He said, don't you dare be late with turning in your papers. And so they began the semester, and the kids came to class, and uh, they began to write papers. And sure enough, September 30th came along, and about 125 out of 150 students showed up on September 30th, the day that that first paper was due, and they laid those papers on Dr. Sproul's desk. And he looked at those papers, and he counted them, and he said, you know, it seems odd to me that I gave very clear instructions at the beginning of the semester that you are not to be late in turning in your papers, and yet 25 papers are missing. And those 25 Freshmen began to beg and plead with Dr. Sproul and said, oh, oh, Dr. Sproul, you know, just, just have mercy on us. We, we got busy and, and we forgot and, and, you know, we just didn't manage our time well. But if you would just be merciful to us this one time, just give us a few more days and, and we'll get those papers turned in. He said, all right, I'll, I'll be mercy, merciful to you this once and, and I'll give you three days. And so those papers came in. October 30th came along, and about 100 students walked in and put papers on Dr. Sproul's desk, and there were 50, miss- 50 missing. And he said, what? did I not tell you that the paper was due on October 30th, and don't you dare be late? And those 50 freshman students said, oh, Dr. Sproul, these, these other professors, you don't understand, they expect so much out of us, and, and we have to work so hard, and we just didn't have time, please just... Just be merciful and give us a little bit of grace. And he thought for a moment. He said, all right, I, I, I will let you have this one more chance. You've got three days. Get your papers turned in. Well, you know full well what happened. November 30th rolled around, and less than 100 students showed up with their papers. And Dr. Sproul did what every freshman student, in fact, every college student, absolutely dreads. He, he pulled out of his pocket this black book in which he recorded all the grades of all the students. And he said, Johnson, you got your paper today? He said, no, sir, I, I don't have my paper. He said, F. He goes, but Dr. Sproul, you, you, you've shown mercy in the past. How, how could you not do so today? I mean, I, just give me a little more time. Just, just give me a couple more days and I'll, I'll get the paper to you. He goes, Johnson, did, didn't I tell you? Did, haven't you had two warnings before this? And haven't I been gracious in the past? And he goes, yes, yes, but please, just one more chance. He goes, no, this, this is the day of judgment, and, and you get an F. And, and, and that student sang out with several other students, and you know exactly what they said, don't you? But Dr. Sproul, that's not fair. That's not fair. It's not right for you to give us Fs just because we were a little bit late turning in our papers. And he said, really? Well, if it's fairness that you want. Johnson, did you have your paper turned in on October 30th on time? Well, no, sir. Okay, well, we'll change that one to an F as well. Wait, 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 wait. No, no, no. I'm fine with just the one F. He said, any other students want to take two Fs instead of one? Now, what's, what's going on? in that story. Well, first of all, there were a bunch of crazy freshmen who needed to learn a lesson, and there was only one way they were going to learn it, and that was the hard way. But you know, I believe this morning there is a little bit of that freshman mentality that lives between each and every one of our ears, and that mentality is this. We begin by being amazed by grace. September 30th, Professor Sproul was the most amazing, the most kind, the most benevolent professor. Everyone was glad to be in his class. By the end of the semester, like most of us, before long, grew accustomed to grace. And in the end, we begin to assume grace, do we not? See, what begins is the delight of the desperate can lead to the dependence of the delivered, ultimately escalating to the demand of the depraved. We forget that grace is grace. God has mercy and grace, and He lavishes it upon us. And we come to the point in our lives where we understand that we are sinners, that we have violated the holy law of God, and that God has every right and every reason to absolutely 
wipe us out and require our death, to require payment at our hand. And oh, it is so amazing when He bestows grace. So amazing that God would not give us what we deserve, that He would shower mercy upon us, and that He would ensure that we have another chance and another chance and another chance. We're amazed by grace in the beginning until we grow accustomed to grace. And growing accustomed to grace is a dangerous place to be. Because when we're accustomed to it, then we just start to assume that it's always going to be there. This is the danger we live in today. People live their entire lives blaspheming God, blaspheming the name of God, blaspheming the character of God right and left. You're familiar with Groundhog Day, right? I've seen memes over the years in reference to that fantastically weird holiday. Some of them are are pretty hilarious. You know, the whole deal with Groundhog Day is there's a groundhog that comes out of his hole. His name, as my daughter learned in in kindergarten a few years ago, was Punxsutawney Phil. And Phil comes out of his hole, and and according to tradition, if he sees his shadow and goes back into his hole then supposedly he's predicted six more long weeks of winter weather. But if he comes out and he doesn't see that shadow, then supposedly he's predicted we're going to have an early spring. Well, Punxsutawney Phil's ex-wife's name is Punxsutawney Phyllis. She lives in Florida now, and she's convinced Phil is a compulsive liar. And, And many of you may not know this, but apparently we now have proof that that groundhog is a Baptist. And we know that because he shows up one time a year, and when he shows up, he expects all the rest of of us to take him seriously. You know, I fear that too many of us live our lives just like that. We've lived our lives not taking God seriously, not being wholly committed, not paying attention to what He has revealed to us in His Word. And then one day, when the grace dries up and the justice shows up, our heart's cry is, but that's not fair. We deserve another chance. God, why are you so harsh? Why are you so hateful? Why are you so judgmental? This is the cry of David in 1 Chronicles 13. God has been very explicit, very clear up to this point in His Word about what the rules are when it comes to His worship, how the Ark of the Covenant is to be handled, how the Ark of the Covenant is to be cared for, how the Ark of the Covenant is to be carried. And one of the things that was never listed in any of those regulations was touch it with your hand. In fact, that was very explicitly forbidden in the law of God. But a people who began by being amazed by grace, grew accustomed to grace, and then they began to assume God's grace, and on this particular day, God showed up in justice and held His word, and David was angry. Now, notice in the text, I just want to sort of walk you through this text quickly, and let's just see what's going on here. And then I want us to see several points of application through this and and see several ways that this, I believe, applies to our lives today. The first thing I would submit to you in verse 7 is the ambition of David. I mean, if you think about it, David is an ambitious king, is he not? I mean, this guy, uh, he he, he is a go-getter. He certainly wants to honor the Lord. He certainly wants to do something great for God. He's He's got an ambitious character. And notice that his ambition leads to assumption. Look what it says in verse 7. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart from the house of Abinadab, and Uzzah and Ahio were driving the cart. Now again, God has laid out very clearly in His Word all the regulations about how the tabernacle was to be cared for. You remember, the sons of Aaron were supposed to go into the tabernacle and cover all the pieces of furniture before the the coverings of the tabernacle were taken down. And it was only after all of that happened 
Then the Kohathites were supposed to go in and pick up all these pieces of furniture by the poles that were affixed into those pieces of furniture. And they were to carry the ark of God by the poles. Do you see the assumption here? David's ambitious. He wants to bring the ark of God back to himself. God has been gracious at various times surrounding this piece of furniture in particular. And you notice that little word there. They carried the ark of God on a new cart. There's the assumption. God, it's a new cart. We didn't go drag an old cart out of storage. We went and got a new cart to carry your precious ark. We made sure we had the biggest and the baddest and the best. We're going all out for God. We got a new cart to transport God's ark. An assumption led to applause. Look at verse 8. David and all Israel were celebrating before God with all their might, with song and lyres and harps and tambourines and cymbals and trumpets. Now, we know how this story ends. So it ought to be instructive to us to see how the assumptions that have been made about how they might transport the ark of God have led to this applause. And it ought to be instructive to us that it really doesn't matter how much applause of men you may have. It really doesn't matter how committed you are and how sincere you are in your worship. If you are doing things contrary to the Word of God, contrary to the rules and the regulations God has set down, it really doesn't matter how much applause you have. Because you notice in verse 9, applause led to arrogance. And when they came to the threshing floor of Kidon, Uzzah put out his hand to take hold of the ark, for the oxen stumbled. In light of all the rules and regulations God has made known, in light of God's revelation of Himself, this was the most arrogant thing any person could have possibly done. You know, there are many people who find it hard to, to kind of square a passage like this with this God that they see as being all-loving and all-kind and all-merciful. In fact, there are theologians out there who would say, see, th this passage right here proves to us, it shows us that the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament are completely different gods. They're not even the same guy. He, you know, th this God in the Old Testament is just this, this mean ogre that's always out to get somebody. He's like a vampire. He's just always out for blood. He doesn't really love people. He's not really concerned about the, the cares of our lives. He, he's just this mean, overbearing God who doesn't understand. I mean, you just look at this passage. You look at the genocide that God commanded in Joshua chapter 8. He told them to go back into Ai and to kill every man, woman, boy, and girl. What is that in our minds but genocide? You go to Leviticus chapter 10, you look at the story of Nadab and Abihu who come in and they offer strange fire before the Lord. And what does God do? It says that he blazed out in fire and fury against them and consumed those two men. People look at passages like this and they say that the God of the Old Testament is mean and vicious and vile, but the God of the New Testament is all about love and grace and acceptance. You know why you might think that? My bet as to why you might think that this morning is because you haven't read all the way to the end of the book. Because I have news for you. If you've read the book of Revelation, you know that whatever God's doing in the Old Testament is small potatoes. It does not hold a candle compared to what God is doing in the New Testament, especially at the end, especially in Revelation. Newsflash. It's the same God in both places. God is just as much a God of holiness and righteousness and justice and judgment and wrath as He is a God of love and mercy and grace. We cannot deny part of God's character in order to make ourselves feel better about the other part of God's character. This is not about our comfort. This is about God's holiness and what God has revealed about Himself to us as His 
people, we have constructed for ourselves a God who has no wrath, a God who has no judgment, a God who does not pour out His wrath upon sinful creatures. And there are people who look at this and they say, well, what was Uzzah's sin anyway? I mean, yeah, we've got a, a passage back there in Exodus that says not to touch the ark lest you die. But really, Uzzah, he's just trying to do God a favor here, is he not? Isn't this sort of an overreaction by God? I would submit to you that the sin of Uzzah is the sin of pride, and it specifically shows up in his life through his arrogance. An arrogance that convinced him that he didn't really need to pay attention to the revealed will of God, to the Word of God. An arrogance that would lead him to believe that he could just come and go as he pleases in God's presence and do whatever he wants, however he wants to do it. The applause led to arrogance, and that arrogance led to affliction. Notice verse 10, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah. And he struck him down because he put out his hand to the ark, and he died there before God. This is Nadab and Abihu 2.0. It's the same story. God gets angry, God gets furious, and he blazes out in anger and consumes these people. Uzzah reaches out, really, just to do God a favor, right? He's just trying to make sure the ark isn't destroyed. I mean, you think about it. This thing is a heavy piece of furniture. It's made out of acacia wood. It's laid over with gold. It's got these two massive cherubim sitting on top of it. This is one big, heavy piece of furniture. Could you imagine if it fell off the cart and got dirty? Could you imagine if it fell off and one of those cherubim's wings got crushed or chipped off? I mean, we... We can't have the ark of God getting destroyed, can we? Uzzah's doing God a favor. I'll just reach out and, and steady it. And God's anger in lashing out with this affliction leads to David's anger. David is ticked off. Look at verse 11. David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. And that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of God that day. He was afraid of God. Have you ever had an experience with God that just left you scratching your head saying, how on earth can I ever come before this holy, righteous creator of the universe? I think there's several things we can learn in this passage. Several things we can apply to our own lives. The first thing we need to understand is that ordinances demand obedience. When God speaks, when God gives clear instructions, He intends that instruction be heard and heeded and followed just as He gave it. When I tell my children to go downstairs and clean their bedrooms, that's exactly what I mean. I don't mean go downstairs and fill your water guns and destroy the drywall by spraying each other, and, and rip up the carpet. No, I mean, go downstairs and clean up your bedroom. That's exactly what I mean, right, guys? I mean, they, they're old enough now to know that. The little one isn't old enough to know, but he'll figure it out. When I speak as their parent, as their father, I mean for what I say to be carried out to the nth degree of the law that I've laid down. That's exactly what God expects of us. He has not given us license to be free to just create things on the fly, to just sort of fly by the seat of our pants and do whatever we want. Worship God however we want. Carry the ark of God however we want. Ordinances demand obedience. And because God is the creator and we are His creatures, when He gives ordinances, when He gives commands, it is up to us to follow those commands. See, we are on dangerous ground when we presume upon the mandates of God. It's not our job. It is above our pay grade to presume upon the mandates of God. It's not our job to go figure out a new way to do what God has told us to do. 
It is incumbent upon us not to get creative with God's commands, but to carry them out. We're also on dangerous ground when we presume upon the methods of God. God has not only told us what He wants, He's told us how He wants it. And, that, and for us to step back and to say, well, well, that was good enough for the 18th century, and that was good enough for Charles Spurgeon in London in the 19th century, and that was good enough for the believers in Jerusalem in the first century A.D., but you know, I mean, we're modern-day enlightened believers living in the 21st century. I mean, we, we can surely come up with better ways to worship God than all those people back then did, right? When we do that, we are trampling on the name of God, on the ordinances of God. We're on dangerous ground when we presume upon the mercy of God. The writer to the Hebrews says that today is the day of salvation. And that implies, just by virtue of the structure of that sentence, that implies you may not get tomorrow. The fact that God has been merciful to you the fact that God has been merciful to me to allow us to wake up and to draw air into our lungs, to live and breathe, that is nothing but the mercy and the grace of Almighty God. Vody Bauckham put it like this, how on earth can a holy and righteous God know what I did and what I said and what I thought yesterday and not take me out of my sleep last night? The only explanation for that is the mercy of God. And we tread on dangerous ground when we presume upon the mercy of God, when we act as though He owes it to us in some way. And what this means for us is that even the right thing done in the wrong way is ultimately the wrong thing. God didn't just say, here's what I want. Now you go out there and figure out how to get it done. No, He told us what He wants. And he's told us how to do it, and he, he told us when to do it. David knew full well the law of God. We're not told in the text, but it's likely Uzzah was of the tribe of Levi. In fact, he was probably of this clan of Kohath, whose job it was to carry the ark of God. Uzzah knew the rules. He knew how the ark of God was to be transported, and he still had the audacity to reach out and touch the ark of God. Ordinances demand obedience and regulations demand recognition. If you're going to obey, you have to recognize that there's actually been something said. Now, what's going on here? In Exodus chapter 25, the regulations have been clearly communicated about how the ark is to be carried. And that's the key word. The ark was to be carried, not carted. It wasn't supposed to be put on a new cart. It wasn't supposed to be put on an old cart. It wasn't supposed to be put on any cart. The Kohathites were supposed to pick it up by the poles and carry it on their shoulders. If you don't believe me, just look at Exodus 25 and verse 10. It says, They shall make an ark of acacia wood. Two cubits and a half shall be its length a cubit and a half its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold inside and outside. You shall overlay it, and you shall make on it a molding of gold around it. You shall cast four rings of gold for it and put them on its four feet, two rings on the one side of it and two rings on the other side of it. You shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. And you shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry the ark by them. The poles shall remain in the rings of the ark. They shall not be taken from it. The, the ark of God is clearly supposed to be carried. And the ark was to be carried by consecrated men, not by contrived machines. There was a whole consecration ceremony that had to be carried out in order for Aaron and his sons to be counted as holy and set apart by God for the task of carrying the Ark of the Covenant. In Numbers chapter 4, we're told in verse 15, when Aaron and his sons have finished covering the sanctuary and all the furnishings of the sanctuary, as the camp sets out, after the sons of Kohath shall come, 
to carry these, but they must not touch the holy things lest they die. There it is right there. Numbers 4.15. Uzzah, you are not to touch the ark of God. And yet he reached out to study the ark of God. There it is, black and white. Only the Kohathites were to carry the ark. And even they had to carry it according to God's prescription. Now we have before us what happens when people decide, I'll worship God in my own way, in the way that suits me best. It doesn't matter how I worship God or what I do, just so long as I'm sincere while I'm doing it. Now folks, sincerity is not the test. Ted Bundy was sincere in his dedication to murdering young women. That does not make his actions honoring to God. Just because he was sincere in what he did does not make it a good thing. See, sincerity doesn't really get you very far with God. Unless you are very sincere about being very particular, about paying attention to the way God has revealed that he would be worshipped. Because God does not take kindly to worship that does not appreciate His appetites. If God is the one being worshipped, our greatest concern ought to be, what is it our God who is being worshipped desires in worship? Regulations demand recognition, and revelation demands reverence. You might be saying this morning, Josh, just wait just a minute. I've read my Bible, and I happen to know this wasn't the first time somebody carried the ark of God on a cart, and God didn't kill anybody the first time it happened. So who does God think he is striking out against Uzzah and killing him because of it in this situation? Josh, I've read my Bible. I've read 1 Samuel 6, and the Philistines carried God's ark on a cart, and he didn't strike any of them dead in the process. What gives? Why is God treating Uzzah this way? One of his own people. When he didn't even do this to the Philistines. Well, the answer to that question is contained in the question itself. It is because they were, wait for it, Philistines. They were not Israelites. God had not revealed his law to the Philistines. The revelation that that God had given went to the Israelites, not the Philistines. They were the one to whom God had revealed himself. They were the ones to whom God spoke in the scriptures that he gave them. You must never touch this piece of furniture. In fact, not only were they not allowed to touch it, touch it they weren't even allowed to look at it. You remember back in Exodus 25 and in Numbers 4, what we're told is that after the sons of Aaron had gone in and covered everything, then the Kohathites were to go in and carry the ark of God wherever God was leading them to go. Not only were they not supposed to touch it, they weren't even allowed to look at it. And we know that because the high priest would tie a rope around his ankle, and they would leave that, the other end of that rope laying outside the most holy place on that one day a year when the, when the high priest would go into the holy of holies and when he would take that blood of that animal to sprinkle it on the mercy seat. Every single time that happened, he had a rope tied around his ankle leading outside. Why? Because if that guy died in there, they've got to have some way to get him out so they can go bury him. They took this very, very seriously. And God had revealed himself to his people. He didn't reveal himself to the Philistines. He revealed himself to the Israelites. And when rules have been revealed, ignorance is no excuse. Try it on a cop sometime. Just go blowing through downtown Rapid City doing 60, 70, 80 miles an hour. And when you get pulled over, just try telling that guy, well, I didn't know. Well, sir, there was a sign posted right there. Well, I didn't look at that sign. I'm ignorant of what the speed limit was. Well, you can get out of your car now and put your hands behind your back. You're going, and we have a nice warm place for you to sleep tonight at the Pennington County Jail. Ignorance is no excuse when the rules have been revealed. Revelation demands reverence. And fervency demands faithfulness. 
this is where it gets a little tricky. Because we talked earlier about David's ambition in bringing the ark of God back home where it belonged. That was a good ambition. There was nothing wrong with that. That was a good impulse on David's part. Let's bring God's ark back to God's city and put it back in God's house. But you notice all the people are celebrating. There is this huge national party going on as they celebrate the homecoming of the ark of the Lord. They're going to bring it back to the holy city. They're worshiping God. They're having this huge celebration. And then Uzzah gets killed. I mean, it'd be like on Tuesday, if you and your family are hanging out in the backyard, having your 4th of July celebration, shooting off your fireworks, and all of a sudden God just sends a lightning bolt down and just strikes your wife and kills her dead. You might be looking around going, what in the world? What was that all about? We were just enjoying ourselves. We were, you know, maybe we were even singing some worship songs and God just wiped somebody out. I mean, you, you can just imagine in this situation, there's this, this celebration that's going on and all of a sudden God just kills the party by wiping out Uzzah. There's no question Uzzah was fervent in carrying out his duties. He wanted to follow his king, David. He really wanted to do his job well. But fervency makes a poor excuse and a poor substitute for faithfulness. You see, Uzzah's motive was misguided. His motives were not being informed by the revealed will of God. He got lazy. And Uzzah's mistake was this. He assumed that he could do God a favor. I mean, you, you just read between the lines, and that's really what's going on here, right? Uzzah and Ahio are leading the cart, drawn by oxen. He looks up, he sees the ark of God. It's about to fall off the cart, and he reaches out to steady the ark. See, he's assumed that he's doing God a favor. He assumed that God needed him to take action that had not been authorized. In fact, it had been strictly forbidden. And Uzzah's miscalculation was this. He assumed the stain of sin. Now listen to me. If you don't get anything else, listen to this. He assumed that the stain of sin on his own hand was less offensive to God than the dirt on the ground. And you can see it, right? You see it in the decision he makes. He makes a conscious decision to reach out and touch the ark, and contained in that assumption is that his sin doesn't stink as bad in God's sight as the dirt on the ground. That he's not as dirty as the ground. He assumed it would be better for a sinful human hand to be placed on that most holy of objects, and that that would be better and more favorable in God's eyes than for that ark to fall and hit the ground. And we stand back and we say, why? Why is God so capricious in His judgment? Why is God so vengeful? The reason we don't understand the wrath of God is we don't understand the wickedness of our sin. I believe one of the most profound things Dr. Sproul ever said was that the biggest problem we have is we don't understand who God is and we don't understand who we are. That is Uzzah's problem. He did not understand how holy God is, and he had no concept of how wicked his sin was. Because you see, presence demands purity. The presence of God demands purity. Jesus tells us about this. You remember in the Sermon on the Mount? You remember what Jesus says about honoring God? He, he sums it up in Matthew 5 pretty succinctly. Matthew 5, 48. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. How's that for a depressing demand? I mean, he's just spent this whole fifth chapter of the book of Matthew telling us about our wickedness, telling us we, if we would come to God, we must come and declare spiritual bankruptcy. 
You say, well, Josh, I don't remember that. Where was that in the Sermon on the Mount? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Translation, blessed are those who understand they don't have anything to bring to the table. And blessed are those who mourn their poverty before God. And helping us understand all of this, he brings it to a close at the end of that chapter. And he goes, now, therefore, you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. I mean, as soon as we begin to get a glimpse of our wickedness, then we're met immediately with a a demand to be perfect. How does that make any sense? Well, it makes sense because God's presence is dynamic. You cannot be in the presence of God without being affected and, and, and everything about you being affected by the presence of God. We see pictures of this all over the Old Testament. For sake of time, I'll just Remind you of one. You remember Moses. He is there on the mountain of God. He, God hides him in the cleft of the rock, and he, he covers his face. God turns his back to Moses. He passes before him. And what happens when Moses comes down off that mountain? Aaron and the entire congregation are saying what? Moses, you've got to veil your face, man. You've got to cover your face up. The glory of God is shining so bright off of you. It's like the high beams off your brand new pickup truck coming at me. At 90 miles an hour in the middle of the night, I can't see, man. you gotta, you got to cover that thing. The presence of God affects everything it comes into contact with. And God's presence is dangerous. It is dangerous. And not only is it dangerous, it's destructive. You say, well, that sounds like an odd way to describe the presence of God. Does it? Does it? The author of Hebrews said that our God is a consuming fire. I'm pretty sure Nadab and Abihu got the point. Pretty sure Uzzah got the message. God, when you cross him, when you intentionally disobey his revealed will, he has the power to utterly destroy and annihilate you because God's presence is demanding. We see this picture in Numbers chapter 5. Anybody with diseases, anybody who is defiled, anybody who has come into contact with the dead, what do they have to do? They have to go outside the camp. Why? Because I, God, dwell inside the camp, and I am holy. And if you are unholy, you must go outside the camp. I cannot be in your presence if you are an unholy being. I dwell in the camp. So when you are defiled, you've got to get out of the camp. The presence of God demands purity. And this is what you and I, this is the reason why you and I need Jesus Christ. People look at the Sermon on the Mount and they say, oh, this is a nice sermon Jesus gave to sort of lift our spirits. Let me tell you something, folks. If you read through the Sermon on the Mount and you find your spirit being lifted by the things Jesus has to say, you, my friend, are missing the point. The point of the Sermon on the Mount is not to make you feel better about yourself and make you feel better about your lottery odds at winning heaven for all of eternity. The point of the Sermon on the Mount is the same thing as the law, except it does its job better than the law. The point of the law is to be a schoolmaster. Why? To drive us to Christ. The point of the Sermon on the Mount is to show us perfection is the absolute standard. And the only way you could walk away from that sermon feeling uplifted and comforted is if you understand Jesus and faith in Jesus is the only prayer you've got. The presence of God demands purity, and that is why for our sake He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God Himself. You see, the punishment God gives sinners is never more severe than the crime. We have a tendency to look at the judgment of God and say, wait, 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 that's not fair. Oh, it's always fair. It's always fair. If you've ever told a lie, the just punishment for being a fallen sinner is eternity in hell, and that is just the way it is. So anything you get that is not that is to some degree a measure of mercy and grace. And if you get to go to heaven and spend eternity in the presence of God, what better definition of mercy and grace could you possibly ask for? 
See, our sin deserves punishment and wrath. So any punishment God gives sinners is never more severe than the crime. And here's the problem most of us have in our minds, wrapping our minds around passages like this. We can't figure out how God can be merciful and loving and gracious and then kill people who disobey His commands, who violate His law. Well, I would submit to you that love demands limits. You might say for a moment, no, I I don't agree with that. I do not agree with that statement. I think love has to be limitless, and if you really, truly love somebody, then you just have to accept them exactly the way they are. I mean, that's what our culture is telling us today, right? You really believe that? You want to give me about 30 seconds to knock that one down? Start your stopwatch. Imagine for a moment that an unrepentant, active sexual predator came into our church and offered to volunteer in the children's ministry. Do any of you parents think it would be loving for the, for the leadership of this church to allow that to happen? Brother, you, we're so glad you're here, and we accept you just the way you are. We love you just the way you are. Here, feel, feel free to just roam about, and you do as you please. We're not here to judge. After all, Jesus says, judge not. There's not a parent or a grandparent in this room under the sound of my voice that would not in that circumstance pull out a Glock and say, you can, over my dead body, and you can pry this thing from my cold, dead hands when I'm done dealing with him. Now, why would we react that way? For the sake of our children, love demands limits, and love dictates that we act with wisdom. Can we come? Should we come? Must we come to God as we are? Absolutely. What did Jesus do? He went and dined with sinners. You know what Jesus didn't do? He didn't go sin with sinners. He said, come to me as you are and I will clean you up. I will give you a righteousness not your own. And I will, make your unri- I will take your unrighteousness upon myself so that you can have the only righteousness that will ever allow you to stand in the presence of God. And that is the righteousness I alone can provide. I am the way, the truth, the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. Love dictates we act with wisdom. And where does that wisdom come from? It comes from above. Love demands limits, and folks, grace demands gratitude. This was David's sin. This is where David went wrong. The Lord has righteous anger, and he burns out against Uzzah. David here has unrighteous anger. He is angry at God because God has killed one of his men. Ultimately, David is angry over the action of God because God said, if you do this, This is what's going to happen. They did that, and that happened. And somehow David felt like he had the right to be offended by the action of God. How many ways has God shown his grace? Just the fact that God revealed who he is and what he expects. Just the fact that he gave his word and gave gave time to understand it and to learn it. And the response and arrogance is to flaunt the Word of God, to come to God and dare to do basically the same thing Nadab and Abihu had done. In his own way, Uzzah is offering strange fire before the Lord. He's saying, God, I'm going to do this for you. And God is saying, Uzzah, I did not ask you to help me out. I told you to obey my Word. See, understanding God's grace requires first understanding God's justice. If you ever walk into a jewelry store, you know how they display their product, right? Black velvet on the back, the absolute biggest, most powerful, shiniest light you can possibly get, about as close as you can get it, to the diamond necklace, to the diamond ring, whatever. Fellas, I'm just here to tell you that that diamond engagement ring will never, ever look as good as it did when they pulled it out of the case and handed it to you in the box. 
Now, it may look better to you on your wife or your girlfriend or your fiance's finger, but that thing is never going to sparkle in quite the same way it did inside that glass case. You know why? Because they have the perfect conditions. They've got the black velvet, they've got the shiny lights, and, and all of that. The way the diamonds are cut are cut to throw as much possible refraction and light as possible. Why do they do that? Because they want their product to look just as attractive as it possibly can. I would submit to you in the same manner, you cannot understand the grace of God until you view it against the backdrop of God's wrath. If God does not have wrath, what exactly is it we're being saved from? But if we understand that our sinfulness and our wickedness deserves the almighty wrath of God to break out against us, if we understand that as we are here this morning, God would be absolutely just in doing the same thing to us today that He did to Uzzah on that day when He knocked Him out right there in front of the ark, if we ever get our minds wrapped around that, then we will begin to get a taste of the grace that God has given to His people, the mercy that He has shed upon us. And not to wear Him out, but to quote Dr. Sproul one more time, don't ever ask God for justice. You just might get it. I ask for every head bowed and every eye closed this morning. Brother Joel is going to come and lead us in a time of response to the preaching of God's Word. And as he comes, I'd like to for us to just go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we, we thank You that You have revealed Yourself to us in Your Word. God, that You have shown us what a holy and a righteous and a loving and merciful and gracious God You are. But God, we, we thank You that You are true to Your own character. We thank You that You reveal Yourself and You uphold Yourself in faithfulness. God, our prayer this morning is that we, we might read your word, we might understand your word, and God, that we might apply it to our lives so that we might not be so arrogant as to strut into your presence, but that we would understand that it is absolute perfection that is demanded in order to reside with you, in order to be in your presence. And Father, help us this morning to see the truth in your word, that that perfection only comes through a relationship with Jesus Christ. It's in His precious name we pray. Amen.